Amen, and thank you, worship team, for making that just a, a very special Sunday morning worship. As you guys can tell, I'm fighting a bit of a cold, which means a few things. Number one, you're going to have to work extra hard to pay attention and not fall asleep this morning. And number two, I will most certainly not go long. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to <clears throat> turn to Matthew chapter one this morning, as has been alluded to already. And as you're making your way there, let me introduce you to our new series that we're going to work through in the month of December. We're calling it Unwrapping the Christmas Gift, if I can unwrap it on the screen. There we are. And it's going to be a, a series where we study the five fulfillment passages of Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Honestly, this is going to be, in my opinion, a series that is going to force us all to do a bit of thinking about passages that we are all fairly familiar with. In other words, it might wake us from our turkey coma this morning. But as we do that and we study these challenging passages, quite frankly, passages where we'll only be able to take just a, a portion of what has been said, I want to remind us a few things this morning. Number one, we're not able to unpack every little nook and cranny about the passages that we're looking at this morning. Surely in preaching, one of the jobs that the pastor, the preacher is called to do is to, to lay out the meaning of the passage, what is going on here. And then the majority of the work, where is all of the sermon going to? Well, this isn't a Bible study only. This is about how do we change for life? Joel Beakey, in his book on preaching, puts it this way. Application is the major emphasis of preaching. The Reformers and the Puritans spent many times more effort in application than discrimination, that is, interpretation of the text. Now, many preachers today fall short in this area. They've been trained to be good expositors, but they've not been trained in the classroom or by the Holy Spirit to bring the truth home to the heart. A meaning, at the end of the day, your pastors will spend significant time in their week studying the passage, making sure that we understand all of what is happening, but the majority will have to be left in our office as we try to bring to you what do we think that this passage is encouraging us how to change. So what we're going to see in these passages, these, these five fulfillments, is just, just the tip of the iceberg of what is happening in the various passages. So as we look to Matthew, let me open up by introducing some comments to you by Craig Blomberg in his commentary, where he says, Matthew repeatedly cites Old Testament passages. And that's true because Matthew's gospel is different and distinct in a few ways, one of them is that he's writing to predominantly a Jewish audience. Over half of these references are not found in any other gospel, which he introduces usually with this fulfillment formula to show how Jesus had accomplished that which those texts ultimately pointed to. 
Matthew frequently doesn't operate with a, a direct fulfillment scheme, but he employs typology. We'll talk about that here in a moment. To demonstrate recurring patterns of God's activity in salvation history. What do we mean by typology? The, the tool that Matthew often uses to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of a particular passage. Well, take, for example, Abraham offering up his son Isaac. That was ultimately a type where he's pointing to Jesus being our true and ultimate sacrifice. Or we could look at Moses as being a type. He's a type of a lawgiver where Christ is the true, the better, the complete lawgiver. Now, I realize this can get all pretty complicated very quickly. I'm not trying to lose you in the weeds. And I promise we will come up for air here momentarily. But I want to make sure that as we read this passage, a passage that is probably fairly familiar, that we have at least the basic tools that we need in order to set the stage. And so when we're looking at this passage that Christ is ultimately the fulfillment of, we're going to have to look back at Isaiah 7 for our passage here today to understand what was happening in the immediate context so that we understand its meaning for today. Now, writing of these Old Testament passages, commentator Beale in his book, Did, Did Jesus and His Followers Preach the Right Doctrine from the Wrong Text? you got to like that text, that title of that book. He, he writes, It is quite possible that the Old Testament authors... Think of Isaiah here for a moment. Did not exhaustively understand the meaning, the implications, and the possible applications of all that they wrote. Subsequently, and we'll see this here in our passage this morning, the New Testament Scripture interprets the Old Testament Scripture by expanding its meaning, seeing new implications in it, and giving new applications. This expansion doesn't contravene the integrity of the earlier texts, but rather develops them in a way which is consistent with the Old Testament author's understanding of the way in which God interacts with his people. So let's come up for air here for a moment. Uh, the point is that, that there will be times when we're studying the passages here today and in the coming passages of our uh, series where we're going to try to interpret them in a particular framework and a way, and that is known as typology. And we'll see that here in our text today. That doesn't mean that when we're studying Isaiah that he had all of the meanings and views and applications, but that by no means lowers or makes the understanding of the passage any greater. So this morning, we're looking at a passage that you're familiar with from Matthew 1, and I've entitled our sermon, The Great Comfort of God with Us. And what I hope that we will see with the time that we have remaining are two implications of Emmanuel this Christmas that, that is going to provide us with great comfort. Follow along with me as I read from Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 25, as we look for these implications, and then as we ultimately turn back to make sure that we have an understanding of 
Isaiah chapter 7. Matthew writes this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. And you'll see how often fear is mentioned in our passage that we're studying in the concept of Emmanuel. To take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, the prophet being Isaiah, and this is what Isaiah wrote. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We're looking for the great comfort of God with us, with Emmanuel. And what we're going to have to do in, in order to understand this passage, as I've been hinting at, is we have to go back to the original writing of this prophecy, Isaiah chapter 7. But in order to do that, I just need to set the ground a little bit, give you a little bit of church, a little bit of Israel history. I'm not trying to lose you again in the weeds, but I want to make sure that we have the context of the passage set up rightly before we dive in. So let's get our dates together first. First, around 1400 B.C., right before Christ, we have the Exodus, Moses leading his people out. And then around 1000, we have David becoming king of Israel. Shortly after that, in 930, Israel, as you know, breaks into two nations, Israel or Ephraim and Judah. And after the, the nations break apart, the general pattern, the general story over and over and over again is the people wander away from the Lord. They worship other gods time and time and time again. And, and the vast majority of the history written down in the Old Testament is God's prophets calling his people back to the true worship of him. And so Isaiah is one of those prophets calling the people back to repentance. And Isaiah 7 is going to take place right in around B.C. 734 to, to 732. And that is rather significant because of what's going to come up in our text. Because Israel, shortly after what happens here, is going to be carted off and carried into exile. The, the northern ten tribes will be taken away and it's not until later, in 587, that Judah is carried off into Babylon. So, so the point, the setting of our story is, is two nations of Israel, they still exist, but they've wandered 
completely away from the true worship of the Lord. And we'll see in the opening verses of chapter 7 of 1 and 2 of Isaiah that the northern kingdom and another pagan nation have come to conquer the southern kingdom to take Jerusalem. I'm going to put Isaiah 7 on the screen just so it's easier for us to follow along with this morning. Isaiah writes this, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, so setting our context, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, what did they do? They, they came up to Jerusalem. So you have the Jews attacking Jews to wage war against it. But they could not yet mount an attack against it. And what happened is when the house of David was told that Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, that's the king, the evil king, and the heart of the people, it shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz. So he's sending him on a mission and a journey. You and Sherah Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool at the highway of the washer's field. And what is he to do when he meets him there and say to him, be careful, O king, be quiet, and again, notice the theme, do not fear. Do not let your hearts be faint because of those you got to love God's sense of irony and insults every once in a while because of those two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the sons of Ramalia. So the, the Israel and the ten tribes and a pagan nation come to conquer, come to destroy Jerusalem, and God says, this shall not stand it will not come to pass. All you need to do is trust in me and I will deliver you. And what we'll see in our passage here in a moment is that God promises this and then he gives his people the opportunity to request a sign. This was a normal fulfillment in the Old Testament when someone spoke for the Lord and often predicted something that was going to happen, there was often an immediate sign that was given to authenticate the message. Now today, when someone speaks for the Lord, when we study the word and say, thus says the Lord, we don't need an authenticating, miraculous sign because we have the completed word of God. If you want to know what God has to say, you can look right here. But back then, they didn't have that so often. An authenticating sign followed a pronouncement from the Lord. For example, we see this also in the, the life and ministry of Isaiah. This will happen a little bit later. He says, I will deliver you out of the city, out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah says this to the king, and the king Hezekiah is also suffering from sickness, and he says, bring a cake of figs and let them cover and lay it on the boil that he, that is the king, may recover. Hezekiah says to Isaiah, what shall be the sign? So over and over, when there's a prediction, there's a request and a given of a sign. And so in our passage, what happens here is that the Lord says and speaks to Ahaz, ask 
a sign of the Lord your God. He's actually giving him the chance to ask for a sign, and he says, make it as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. Essentially, what the Lord is saying to King Ahaz, I'm going to deliver you. This attack will not happen, and to prove it, you can ask for anything you want to be a sign. Can we just all pause for a moment and say, that is a merciful and loving God. He was willing to give them any sign that they wanted to indicate that he was going to save his people. But Ahaz said, but is always a dangerous word, right? After the Lord speaks, it shouldn't really be followed by a but. But we see here, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now some of you are thinking, man, that's a really pious answer. But can we agree, if the Lord says to do it, you should do it. In fact, we know that Ahaz is not functioning out of piety, but he's actually functioning out of disbelief. Not only from other areas in this text, but the proof is in the pudding. What did Ahaz do when he finds out this word from the Lord? What did he find out when the invasion was coming? He says this. Oops, i got to finish the prophecy real quick. And the Lord gives the judgment against them because of that. i got a little ahead of myself there. Here's the sign that he gives them. Hear then, O house of Israel, is it too little for you to weary men that you would weary my God also? Therefore the Lord, he will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and, he, and she shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This sign is going to be a sign of judgment against the people. He shall eat curds and honey. And when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land, here's the prediction, the land of whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now I mentioned before I got off my notes and out of place that we know Ahaz was functioning out of doubt and fear because of what he does next. Ahaz takes the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and he sends them as a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listens to him. The king of Assyria marches up against Damascus and takes it, carrying its people to captive to Kerr, and he kills Rezin. So the Lord promised a sign, a sign that would indicate that he would deliver him, and instead the king sends gold to another nation to deliver and then a child is given as a sign, a sign of judgment. What we learn from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, that Isaiah has this child, this predictive child, and this child is spoken of both in the immediate but in the future tense this way, as we studied earlier, as we saw on the screens, but we see about this child that will be born to us, a son shall be given. This child, the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called. And this is why we ultimately look to a, a future fulfillment. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord 
will accomplish this. Now that was all just introduction. That was all just setting the stage and understanding what is both happening in the immediate context of our passage and the passage that is being referenced. Let me summarize real quick. Judah, the smaller kingdom, is about to be invaded. God promises to deliver them even though they were an evil nation who had forsaken worshiping the one true God. Instead of trusting in the Lord, they trust in other things to deliver them. Because of this, ultimately, the Lord predicts and prophesies that a child will serve as an instrument of judgment against the people, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us, to demonstrate that God is with his people, and he will deliver them. The setting, of course, in Matthew is the people of Israel have been overcome again, this time by Rome. They're looking for deliverance from Rome, but God sends his son, Jesus the Christ, to deliver them from something far greater, from Satan and their sin. So we're looking at the comfort of of God with us this morning, and the first implication is God being near us is our great help and our great hope. Now, since the garden, the most comforting, one of the most comforting things that God uses to assuage his people of their fears is that he will be with them. For example, in Genesis 3, chapter 8, we see that the God is with his people. He's walking with them in the cool of the morning. But because of their sin, God has to drive them out from his presence. They could no sooner be near God or him be near them because of what would happen. You cannot see my face, the Lord tells Moses, and live. So he had to drive them away. We were meant to be with and dwell with God. But because of our sin, we have been separated. But God has promised, even after that, to to be with his people. Over and over again, when the people are fearful, God promises, I will be with you. This promise is our great hope and our great help. We see it being given all throughout the Old Testament. For example, when Abraham is going to deliver Lot and he's leading his band of troops, it becomes clear, God is with you. Abraham, or we see later, God says, we we see this indication of this, and the Lord appeared to him the same night. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you. Over and over, we see God promising, I will be with you. We see it in Moses. I will will be with you. Moses was afraid of how he would function in Pharaoh's court. I will be with you. And so, in order to set the stage in Matthew's gospel for the, the great news of Christ's advent, he sets the stage with us seeing that our great hope, our great help, is that the Son of God will be with us. 
In fact, most, uh, in fact, Matthew actually opens his gospel this way, and you may not even call it, it's the way he ends his gospel as well, in the Great Commission. And behold, I am with you always, time and time again. God is trying to reassure his people, reassure us, brothers and sisters, that our great hope and our great help is that God is with us the end of Moses' life, he'd say it this way, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to us as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, his point was Moses knew that as you survey the nations and their idols, their gods were far off. The Lord, their God, was near Or what great nation is there that has the statutes and the rules so that the righteous as all the law that I set before you today. Sometimes we look at the Bible as onerous. The Old Testament people viewed it as a great privilege to know and have the word of the Lord. And so God being with them is their great hope. I mentioned that that the disciples did not quite understand what was going on until Pentecost. uh, Until the spirit of the Lord dwelled inside of them. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. They were confused what it meant for God to be with them because they believed that Jesus was going to restore the physical, literal kingdom to the nation of Israel. We even see it after the resurrection. After the disciples have seen Jesus, they ask him, Lord, is this now the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel. That was not why Christ had come. That was not why he was with his people. He was to deliver them from something greater. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But before we do that, can I ask you, friends, brothers and sisters, is God being near you your great help and your great hope? When you think about the challenges of life that you face, Where do you turn for help? Where do you turn for hope? Do you turn to your education? Do you turn to your friends? Do you turn to books? Do you look for your circumstances changing or relationships going away that that is what will provide you with hope in the midst of this hard time? Do you look to your wealth? So often Christ rails against the evils of money because it promises to deliver, it promises help, it promises hope. Where do you find help and hope? Do you turn to the world and its answers? Do you just lean on friends? And friends aren't a bad thing. But again, we should turn to and lean on God first and foremost. As we consider the advent of Christ, of his coming here to earth, as we consider the implications for our lives and what it means, perhaps one of the most important things we can do today is to ask, where do I find hope in hard times? Where do I look for help when life is challenging and difficult? And if it's not in the person and the work of Christ, of God being with you, then there might be some steps that you need to take even today, this Christmas season. 
So for example, one of those steps might be committing to, to regular Bible reading and study. It's always so interesting to me that when life is hard and difficult, if we're honest with ourselves, the first thing that we have jettisoned is regular study of God's Word. Or if we are looking to God's Word, our Bible study looks a little bit like this. I wonder where I'll look today for hope and help. No, definitely not Ezekiel. Proverbs, that's where I'll go. Proverbs. I would encourage you, as you seek to make sure that God is your hope and help, that you would have a regular, faithful Bible study plan, and that plan would eventually take you through the entire Scripture so that God can be with you. Or another one would be that you're at church regularly. I think it's easy for so many of us, when, when life is hard, when life is difficult, the first thing that we jettison is the communion of the saints and public worship with one another. We don't want others to know, we don't want to tell them about our difficulties that we're going through. Beloved, when life is hard, God wants to be with us. He is with you and one of the best ways that you can feel the abiding hope of Christ is to be with his people each and every Sunday. Another way that you can experience Christ being your hope and help is by giving and sharing the good hope that you have with other people. Paul would put it this way in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, using the hope you have to give hope to others. Or to say it another way, one of the most effective ways to distribute hope to yourself is to give it to others by getting the focus off of you and on to someone else. So many times when life is hard and difficult, we turn inward instead of looking outward on how we can bless others. Or another way that God being near can be our great help and hope, I mentioned it last week, but some of it could be that you would get formal training in, in how to lead a Bible study, how to do one-on-one -on -one discipleship or, or counseling. And so many times when, when we need hope, we need someone who's been trained, who's gone through those very things. And so I'd encourage you to consider, should I be equipped and trained to be a, a hope giver for when life is hard. There's no doubt there's a lot of one-on-one, -on -one, natural incarnation, hope giving and helping that's biblical happening around here, but there might be value to getting it trained to the next level. Emmanuel meant God is with us. It was supposed to indicate that God is near to assuage our fears, that he is our great help and our great hope in times of need. But God being near is also our great salvation. We saw that in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. Jesus means literally Yahweh saves. Yahweh being the divine revealed personal name of the Lord that we see in Exodus. So Yahweh saves is the name Jesus. By the way, just a little fun fact as well. Joshua is the anglicized version of Jesus. You were supposed to laugh a little bit more at that. 
Our great hope is being saved from our sin because Jesus is with us. John would put it this way in his opening to the gospel. And the word became flesh and he dwelt, he tabernacled amongst us. It's the same word. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Before, God set up his physical tabernacle where the people could draw near and and offer up their sacrifices. And now, God would tabernacle, he would dwell with his people. When God was setting up his relationship with his Old Testament people, the Jews, he set up the tabernacle and it's there where I would meet with them above the mercy or the atonement seat from between the two cherubim that are the ark of the testimony. And I will speak with you. That's what was happening in the tabernacle. God had set up a physical place where he would be and put his, his spirit so that the people could hear from the Lord. And it was a glorious thing. In fact, the book of Exodus records it this way. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord. Just imagine how amazing that scene was. God's physical presence dwelling on earth. But as you know, only the high priest could draw near once a year to offer sin atonement for himself and for the people. God was still very far off even though he was very near. And Christ comes to be near his people so that no longer would they have to offer sacrifices of goats and bulls to save them, but that Christ, he would be their sacrificial lamb so that God could be near. And the implication of this we see in Hebrews 14. The author says it this way, let us then with confidence Before the people could not do this, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Our great joy, brothers and sisters, is that God is with us. He has provided us with salvation. And if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would say there's so many people here, the pastors, the deacons, there's so many people here who would love to tell you about how Christ can be your great salvation. We would hate for you to go through another Christmas where you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. But if you do know Christ as your Lord and Savior, can I ask, do you marvel at and regularly contemplate how amazing it is that that your God is near and that you can draw near to him. There is nothing in between you and he has saved you. You could begin by living out that awe and that amazement by sharing your testimony, sharing the good news that you have with other people. So many of us, we haven't thought about, haven't planned, haven't prepared for what it looks like to share the good news of Jesus, and we've talked about that before, so I'm not going to go into too great a detail there, but here at Christmas time, if Emmanuel comes so that he will save his people, 
I hope that you would be able to share the good news about Christ and that you would be excited that there would be a level of joy that, that you would have, that, that you have a personal relationship with Jesus and you're excited to share that with others. As I conclude, let me share a personal story from my own life. Uh, between my sophomore and junior year, uh, I applied for and eventually received an internship to do a study abroad in London. So the first semester of my junior year, I went to London and I studied at the London School of Economics and then had an internship in the House of Commons, the British Parliament. It's like their, it's like their Congress. It, it, was, it was honestly pretty cool. I thought I was pretty cool stuff that when a whole bunch of people are, are queuing, that's what they do in England, they don't line up, they, they queue to get into Parliament, that, that I got to walk past the crowds, bit of a smirk on my face, show my ID, and I got to watch as all the people are like, how did he get in? I talked to the guy in, an Eng in my American accent and the, and the English were like, how is he getting into this place? I thought I was pretty cool stuff for sure. And I wanted to show that off. And so when my, my best friend flew over, I decided to, to give him a tour of of the House of Parliament. So some of the doors are guarded with people, and then there are some secret entrances where you can just swipe your key card and you can get in. So I swiped my key card and got my buddy in, and we walked around. This is the inside of the clock tower. You guys know it as Big Ben. It's called the clock tower. And I, I toured him all around, and eventually he started doing a lot of this. And some guys with machine guns found us, and they took us outside. He wasn't allowed to be there anymore. But I was so excited to show him about the access that I had to something that was reserved, that was closed off to others. Dear brothers and sisters, are we that excited? Because I think you would agree that was a pretty cool thing to be able to do. Are we that excited to share the good news about Emmanuel, God with us, this Christmas? Will you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you and we marvel that you would send your son to be born here on earth and to take on human flesh, to be with and dwell among his people, to, to give them great hope and help in the times of trial, but ultimately to be our sacrifice so that we can be with you to, to lead us to salvation. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who doesn't know you, that, that they would not go another Christmas without salvation, or anyone at our sister churches or churches around the world who are hearing the gospel message proclaimed, that they would see the value, the power of Christ with them this Christmas. And as we go from here, Father, help us to be excited about our salvation that your son secured by dying on the cross in our place. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Pastor Bill is going to give us some instructions about the deacon election that's about to happen. Pastor Bill.